Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first Intuition Student Podcast. This evening, we're talking about language, and I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Dave Malthouse. Good evening, Dave. Hi there, Ben. I thought you were going to introduce me as some kind of linguist, which I think I most certainly am not. So, um, been a good week for me. How about you, Ben? Um, it's been it's been a good week for me as well. I've been getting around the various classrooms. I popped in to see a level three class yesterday in Cambridge and had a good time with them. Most of them studying for their first exam at level three. So all the usual questions around how quickly after the course should I sit my exam? How do I book my exam? Do I get my results straight away after the exam? What's the pass mark for the exam? And it really reminds me that, Dave, me and you go through this regularly and we think we are saying the same thing over and over and over again. But actually, every year or dare I say it, probably every couple of months, we get a new wave of students where this is all being seen for the first time. Yeah. And it's something that we say all the time because it's our job day in, day out. And I think we sometimes forget that some people only see us once you know every every couple of weeks or once a month or sometimes they only see us for one course in their entire qualification and it will be the first time they ever hear the things that we're saying about exam technique exam preparation and things like that exactly and and i would remind people with that in mind we have got the back catalog of all of our previous episodes of the podcast We've covered lots of great topics there. Please look us up. Please go and download the previous episodes and please subscribe to future episodes. If you subscribe, it should automatically download the most recent episode. And we tend to get one out every week. I've also seen in the news today as we're recording this, Dave, that we've had the most recent update on the UK inflation rate and it has come down. Something we were talking about on a previous episode and they also mentioned something on the, the news on the radio today with regards to the relationship between inflation and pay. And they talked about the effect of a, a real pay benefit to people for the first time in quite a while. The rate of pay is actually exceeding the rate of inflation. And it made me think of something that I've been teaching to my level four class in applied management accounting, because we talk about um, indexation and thinking about index numbers and comparing the price of things and the the wages at different points in time. Yeah, I saw the um, the inflation figures today. My my phone blew up when they were released this morning, Ben, because I, I've been telling people that my belief was, and I think I mentioned this on a podcast, that <laughs> the UK inflation rate would drop below five percent this month, and I, I was proven correct. It's actually it dropped to what I would consider my best case scenario. Um, we had a 0% increase in prices from last month to this month. And as we know, inflation is based on a 12-month rolling average. So as we've moved forward a month, we've the most recent month, we've had a zero change. And the month that fell off 12 months ago had a 2.5 index point increase in it, which was all to do with fuel, um, domestic fuel bill increases that happened this time last year. So it, it was one that I, I called, I'm quite glad to say. Um, you're absolutely right. And then on the back of that, a few uh, a few days ago, we had the average wage price 
prices announced, which are now at a much, much higher level than the underlying inflation is. So people are getting real real time pay rises um, where their pay is rising at a rate that is greater than inflation, which, again, is something that I would expect, because quite often when employers are awarding pay rises, they're looking back over the last 12 months. They're looking at what the inflation has has been over the last 12 months and then give people a cost of living pay rise. And if we're looking back, say it was last month I was looking back and the inflation rate was 6%, I might be thinking I'm going to award my staff a 6% pay rise. I award them that 6% pay rise this month and now the new inflation figures are out at 4.6. So we're, we're getting a, a pay rise that's higher than the current rate of inflation. So um, for anyone that has had those pay rises recently, hopefully that, that helps out a little bit with the cost of living. The thing that um, is not always taken into account with those numbers though ben and we've mentioned this before in a podcast is interest rates and mortgage payments so although we're seeing inflation is starting to cool down because those interest rates have been put up over the last year we're seeing an extra squeeze on cost of living for people who have got mortgages or who have needed to borrow money for new vehicles and things like that and, and that also filters down doesn't it to things like the rental market because if if the owner of the property is having to pay more on their mortgage chances are that's going to mean an increase in the the rent that they want to receive from their tenants um lovely stuff we have got a guest this evening we haven't had a guest in weeks but we've got a guest this evening so i'm going to introduce her now um rachel lauf is joining us rachel good evening Hi everyone, how is everyone doing today? Um, really good, thank you, really good. So tonight we're talking language. It's something I've had in the back of my mind for a podcast episode for a little while. We know one of the biggest challenges to all students when they are sitting accountancy exams is getting to grips with the various terminologies, the peculiarities in language specific to accounting, and if you combine that with the world of exams that are time pressured with lots of information that will be needed to direct an answer, I think it's a perfect storm. We thought, though, who better to come and have a chat with us or share some examples, some ideas and someone that understands what that's like, but also understands what it's like to do it when English is not your first language. And we see this quite often with students that maybe they've had their education up until now overseas. They've come over to the UK. They're working in the world of accounting. They want to get a job or a career in the world of accounting, and they need to do the, the professional exams in the UK. So, Rachel, really great to have you with us this evening. Before we get into the depths and the detail of the language, we always ask our podcast guests to give a bit of a background story to them. Dave talks about their superhero story. If this was a Marvel movie and we were going to introduce Rachel as our new superhero, what would be your backstory? How have you got to your position today? Right. Thank you for having me in the first place. It's really nice to be here. Um, I'm a coach at First Intuition, a skills and development coach. So I'm not sure if everyone is doing apprenticeship or some people probably will be doing distance learning as well. So if you are studying apprenticeship, you will have your dedicated coach to help you throughout the apprenticeship. And I started almost uh, two years ago now with First Intuition, I think. But prior to that, uh, I moved to UK nine years ago when I was 18. 
and I just started studying an uh, undergrad degree in psychology and then I just wasn't sure what to do afterwards so I had a gap year I worked at a primary school as a teaching assistant I was thinking am I going to teaching but then I thought that wasn't what I wanted to do and then I started studying again my master's in education because I just wanted to have kind of broader understanding of learning and teaching and I thought that it's a great opportunity and obviously there was COVID as well so I thought that's a nice thing to do over COVID and yeah now I'm here with First Situation and I'm supporting all the apprentices that we have. So part of that role is having regular catch-ups and progress reviews with the students that are assigned to you. What sort of things do you hear from students with regards to the challenges of the terminology and some of the language used in the exam? So we have obviously lots of students. Most of the students will have their first language, English, but already it is hard as it is to understand lots of terminology and understand these words in English. And it is much harder to learn these key terms and anything to do anything technical in second language or for some people as I can see Julia that's her third language so that is you know if you think about it she needs to understand two languages before she's even able to think about the third language so it's even more to consider there is lots of challenges coming with it you know as you said speed of the exams and the time you know it's lots it's time pressured reading with understanding and making sure that even you understand the words in the question, I think is the key, but also then have the understanding of the key terms, lots of words, you know, um, they will have lots of meanings in English. So I think that is, you know, quite interesting thing to understand the actual meaning of the word in the context of whatever that is that we are reading, whether that is the exam or an actual, you know, module that we are learning. So I think, yeah, that's the very important part to understand the context of that word. I, I hope me and Dave can talk more about that in a moment, but you found a stat with regards to really understanding the words in in text and how much of those words you need to, or how many of those words you need to understand to actually be able to understand what the text is trying to communicate. So the actual stat that I found was that vocabulary knowledge is important because it is springboard for learning new vocabulary. So particularly in the technical vocabulary of any discipline, whether that is accountancy or anything else. So if a student do not have a strong base vocabulary, and that means you need over 95% of the words covered in the text that you are reading to understand, then you will have difficulty learning any other new words within that context. So what that means in practice, if you understand less than 95%, you really will struggle to answer the question. So it is very important to have that understanding of all the keywords and everything that you're reading in the sentence that you are, you know, studying. Dave, what's your thoughts on that 95% stat? It, it shocked me when I saw how high that was actually for comprehension. Absolutely. I, I When I'm reading a, say, a novel, I know that there's always going to be a word that's unfamiliar with, to me or a name that's unfamiliar to me, or a place that's unfamiliar to me. But I always think, well, I can derive what it means by where it's placed. I can derive what it means by its context. I can understand, is it a person's name? Is it a place's name? Is it just a term that I don't know or I haven't heard of that I can work out by how it's used in a descriptive sense of what it actually means? 
But that's probably you know, one word in maybe a chapter where you've got several thousand words. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's like 0.001% of, of all words. And I understand the 99.99% of it, which means that that word that I don't know, I can get by without ever having seen it before. But then if we start moving up to this 95% figure, now we're reading text where one word in 20, we don't know the meaning of it. And suddenly that does become more challenging. And, you know, if I was reading a book and one word in 20, I thought I came across, I thought I've never seen that before. I don't know what it means. Now, if we think about that in context of our exam questions, even if English is your first language, the first time you read an accounting exam, you're going to come across more than one word in 20 that you don't understand. If we just think about those, you know, what we think of as basic accounting terms, so debit, credit, accrual, prepayment, deferral. Um, You know, if we think about non-current assets or we think about um, equity, any of those terms we haven't come across before if we've never studied accountancy. And very quickly, we're going to cross that threshold of 95%. And if we put an accounting paper in front of a non-accountant, so my mum, if I give her an AAT level three exam and say, could you have a go at question two? She'd probably read through it and say, no, I can't. I don't know what the question is asking me because I don't understand the language that's being used. And she's not going to pick up and say, yeah, I don't understand, you know, 95%. uh, No, I only understand 95% of it. So I can't understand the question. She's just not going to get it. So I think even for people that are have English as a as a first language and are reading papers written in English in accountancy without that base level of vocabulary of understanding what those terms mean, we're going to struggle. So I can only imagine how challenging it will be if English isn't your first language. And it's not just the financial terminology, it's some of the other terminology that's used in the exams that's also going to cause an issue and get us below that 95% magic number. I think that that presents a number of challenges and and complexities of the English language itself, but also the specific language that we use in the world of accounting and finance. So I I think, Rachel, you've you've been looking at some translations because my thought process would be if there was one word I didn't understand in a foreign language, I would look to translate it. I see my daughters doing that. They both do Spanish and French at school. They've got lots of fancy apps. One of them has even got a really cool smartphone app where if you've got a, a transcript in a foreign language, you put your smartphone camera on it and it translates it in real time. The concern you had around that was it's quite hard sometimes to just pick one word and directly translate it into English. Yeah, so lots of times it got me in tricky situations in the past, you know, when I thought I'm just going to Google the words, you know, Google Translate, very simple. And it given me direct translation in my language. Obviously, that was not what it, that meant in English in the context that I was trying to use, you know, what I was trying to say. So now I'm much wiser and I always search for the meaning of the specific words. And as we know, English is a lovely language. It's got lots of meanings for one word. So I think quite a nice one that I found was bank as a very good example. So we all know bank, what is the bank? So it's a business that keeps on lends money and provides other financial services. But it can also be land along the side of a river or a lake. We could also have it as a 
uh, large sloping mass of earth, sand or snow, or place where a human blood is stored, there's actually eight of these. So I'm not going to bore everyone with, you know, eight meanings of bank, but like that is the idea that is so important to research the meaning of the word within the context that we are reading rather than the direct translation, because it does not always match, unfortunately, with the mother language that, you know, we use. Really interesting observation and something that is relatively new. The AAT have actually been in contact with me knowing we're talking about this this evening because a, a newer development from the AAT, they are bringing in the ability in some of their assessments for students to have a translation dictionary. But that dictionary, as I've read the rules, can't actually have a description of the word. It would literally just be a direct translation. So as much as that sounds like it might be a tool that would aid students, we've also got to be mindful that they need to make sure they pick up the correct translation from Polish to English or English to Polish when they are looking it up. Dave, I'm, I'm sure not just for students with English as a second language, but for lots of students, you've had some challenges with some of the accounting terminology over the years. I think... Oh, I, I tend to make a joke of it in my classes that we in a profession make it potentially harder than it needs to be with multiple terms that all potentially mean the same thing. Yep, we, we see it all the time. So when when I started studying for my accountancy exams, I talked about debtors, Ben, and everything was debtors. I talk about debtors. I talk about bad debts. Um, and then something happened in the wonderful world of accountancy. We decided that in the UK, we would start to adopt international accounting standards. And um, something that I was always told is that when we kind of got together to try and establish what would be common terms that we would use, we all had to kind of, shall we say, agree with the American terms. So, uh, and a lot of people jokingly say it's because the Americans couldn't learn another word, we had to adopt their word. So suddenly the Americans don't call it debtors. The, uh, the Americans call it receivables. So now we're dealing with two terms meaning the same things. We're dealing with debtors. We're also dealing with receivables. And if you're going into the, the, the industry now, you might be working in a business where people call it debtors because that's the English term. However, in exam land, we might be talking about receivables because that's what in exam land we're taught to use. So there are lots of terms like that that have come about for good reason, but we now have multiple terms that mean the same thing. And Ben, how many different names has a, has a statement of financial position been known by over your lifetime? Oh, wow. So I, I would still call the statement of financial position uh, a balance sheet. Absolutely. But again, some people talk about balance sheets. Some people talk about statement of financial position. If you're in the world of charities, you've got a whole world of other different terminology that you would use for what we'd refer to as a simple balance sheet. So um, it, it, it's something that we don't make anyone's life easy because there are so many terms. We also have terms that are very, very similar. Um, I, I, I remember speaking to a student who didn't have English as a first language. They were doing AAT level four. They were doing the financial statements paper. And there was always a written question in that exam that asked you to write about one of the accounting standards. And um, 
it was usually the question would either ask you for a definition of a asset or a definition of a liability. And this particular student knew their stuff really well because when I asked them questions, they knew really well what the what the answers were, but they weren't passing the exam and they weren't passing this particular question. And it's only when I looked at their written work that they were confusing the terms equity and entity. And when you're looking at a definition of an asset, okay, interchanging those two words completely changes the meaning of what you're writing down. So this student was saying, I know this definition, okay, and they would tell me it, but then when they wrote it down, they wrote down something slightly different because of the confusion around those two words. Rachel, you were talking earlier when me and you caught up around some of the things you did when, when you were studying. And one of the things you mentioned was, was writing your own glossaries i wonder if you wanted to add a bit of detail to maybe help students see if they could do something similar right so as we all know everybody loves a little spreadsheet so i think it's a really nice to like create yourself one and first i would use all the keywords that are within the module then especially you know i would start with those that i don't understand and i don't know what they mean then in the next column i would talk about the meaning within the context that i'm studying rather than the translation and then in the next column, I will write it in my own language. Obviously, the hope is that my brain will connect it all together. Most of the time it works, but you need to go over it, you know. And then you can always refer back to that little glossary the entire time you are studying and revising until it becomes, you know, the second nature to you. Don't think about it anymore. So that was quite helpful with my studies when I was studying at uni. Fantastic. And, and something I would add to maybe encourage students to do is then look at the links between the words. So you can almost start mm. building those associations that in your glossary, you could have, for example, payables could also be referred to as creditors mm. is relevant to the supplier balances and would be seen on the purchase ledger. And I encourage all of our students to do that. I was actually doing it with my class yesterday saying, when I see that word, my brain now connects three or four other words with it that just starts building a mental picture that I can then use to hopefully go and use it correctly in the exam. Um, I, I suppose the other thing around that is just thinking, you mentioned writing it in your own language. I would encourage students, even if English is their first language, to maybe write stuff back out in their own words. Dave, is that something you've encouraged students to do over the years, to be able to actually explain it, but explain it on your terms, not just rote learner, a definition in a textbook? Yeah, I always refer to it as the my mum test. So can I write it in words that my mum would understand? So could I write a definition down and hand it some? I always use my mum because my mum is not an accountant and she always tells me and reminds me that she's not an accountant whenever I talk to her. So could I write something down, give it to my mum who's not an accountant and could she understand what I've written down? And that to me is the test of do I really understand something? So can I give it to someone in a written format who isn't an accountant and can they understand what I mean. When we caught up earlier, Rachel, you, you mentioned a term that I hadn't really come across before, but actually this afternoon when I was getting the train into the office, I was on my phone doing a bit of Googling. You mentioned the concept of word families and said it's not just a case of learning a language to learn individual words. You actually need to go further if you're going to have a thorough understanding of the word family. 
Yeah, so obviously another lovely little stat because I do love them. So native speaker vocabulary size is not easily determined, but there is a general agreement that an adult native speaker of English knows between 15,000 to 20,000 word families. So to you know, put that in a perspective, someone whose English is not first language may know as few as 5,000 words, but that we are talking at the university level. So someone who is not at the university level is expected to know even less than 5,000 family words. And, you know, you need to supplement these words somewhere, you know, with this specialist vocabulary, whatever discipline you are studying. I think you had a quite nice uh, example of the word families. So it's any deviation of the base word. So you say, you know, cash, cash flow, cash book, cash sale. So all of these words, they, you know, fall into the category of the word families. And that is a huge difference, 20,000 family words, and then knowing only 5,000 family words to then understand actually any question in an exam. I was thinking on, on the train about the word pay and all the derivatives mm -hmm. around it. So we talk about, uh, for example, Ben pays Dave. Now, when you read that in a question, what would be the first thing, Dave, you would want to know about Ben pays Dave in the scenario that we were looking at in an exam? Well, I want to know why you're doing it, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> why am I doing it? If it said pays or if it yep. said paid, we're thinking about that has already been yep. uh, a payment. We need to know who I am, who you are in the scenario, what yep. we're paying for. Um, we will use the word payment. We'll use the word paid. That could be confused, though, with the word payable, which actually means if you are a payable of mine, Dave, what haven't I done yet? You haven't yet paid me. I haven't yet paid you. So the, the more that you look into these word deviations, the more you think, actually, that adds another level of confusion. And you worry that you see the word pay straight away and your brain already jumps to a conclusion without actually fully understanding it. As we said early, Rachel, in the context of the, the situation, because that payment could mean lots of different answers are now applicable depending on the context. Um, if I've made the payment to Dave, well, if you're doing the accounts for Dave, He's just received money. You're going to record that completely differently to the fact if you were doing the accounts for Ben, I've made the payment. You're going to record that in a completely different place with a completely different debit and credit. Um, I found it really interesting to start thinking about those word families, Rachel. I'm going to look for more examples of that as I'm now teaching. I think mm -hmm. one of the benefits of doing these sessions, as well as hopefully benefiting the students, it should also make people like me a, a more aware tutor where I can start thinking actually we maybe need to just break that down a bit more um you also mentioned about your ability to learn a language by communicating with other people and I thought that was quite an interesting take to have on it you, you said you quite often have to ask somebody around you have you got two seconds just to explain that word to me yeah so as you said, if I am seeing you, I can get the interaction back. I can see, okay, perhaps I need to explain a little bit better what I'm trying to say, you know. Whereas when you write it, you know, when you do it, when you are doing the exam, you don't get that visual feedback from someone who is the native speaker, because then it's just, just yeah, this is my best ability. And it does make sense in my head, in my language, but does it actually make sense in English? 
So it is really handy to be able to discuss that. I don't think it's a great way to interact with anyone in the classroom as well. You know, I do encourage everyone to always just ask away. Like that that is the best way to learn. Just ask someone who speaks the language, what do you actually mean by this? Can you give me an example? Can you use it, you know, in a different way in a sentence? And you can then understand it in a context. And it's much easier to then remember and associate when you would like to use that same word in the future. And then if you hear it again, again, I already can figure, oh, yeah, I asked actually Ben that time about his word and he explained it so well. So now my brain can be like, oh, yeah, I know what this means. I know what this means in this specific context as well. Rather than like, if you just look up again, the translation, it might not necessarily mean what you need to know. So I always do encourage everyone, do ask for the meaning if you're unsure. And, you know, it can be even, as you said, when English is your first language, you might not understand if you don't have this, you know, accountancy jargon, if you don't understand the vocabulary. I don't have, you know, uh, any formal education accountancy. I am, you know, at the same level as your mum, Dave. So I, you know, lots of times when I have progress with the student, I'm just like, hold on a minute, you know, can you, you know, explain it very, you know, in a simple terms for a non-accountant, what you're trying to tell me that you just did. So, yeah, it is very important to not be afraid to ask for a better explanation. And I'd, I'd be interested, Dave, on your thoughts of this. I think sometimes as well, it's very obvious students that have been limited in their exposure to some of the accountancy terms out there in the real world. I, I can think of people that the more people you can talk to, the more differences you get. And that only adds to your vocabulary and to your language. I'm sure in class you quite often mix up the terms to to hopefully give that broader exposure to the students. Yeah, I, I always like to kind of dig into people's understanding. So I'm always a bit wary when people use very long, very technical words, because I think sometimes people will learn a long technical word thinking it sounds impressive or thinking that is the answer. But I actually want to dig in. Do you understand what that means? So people will talk about, you know, if we if we have a foreign currency transaction, how could we protect our business against the risk of the foreign exchange rate moving? And people will say we could use derivatives. Now, derivatives are a lovely sounding word, but you haven't told me that you understand what a derivative means. You're absolutely right. Derivatives can be used. But what are derivatives? You know, do you know what a derivative is? What are examples of derivatives? How would you go about using one of those derivatives in order to protect yourself from that foreign currency exchange? So for me, I'm always a little bit nervous when people will throw out a very technical words. I much prefer people to give me the my mum answer uh, and explain it in their own terms because that shows that you understand it. And I think you only get that through those conversations with, with other people. Because it's very easy for someone to throw a technical word. And then if you say, what do you mean by that? And then they don't know. Well, that's an opportunity for you to uncover it, ask your tutor, ask someone else and start discovering what that actually means. I see it in audit lessons. It wouldn't be a podcast episode, Dave, if I didn't get the wonderful world in of audit somewhere along the line. But it, it's quite apparent sometimes that even in a class of students where some work for one firm, some work for another, some work for another firm, they've got their own slight peculiarities of ways that they call things slightly different names because that's the way their firm have, have taught it. That's the way their firm always refer to it. 
And actually, it's only when you see all those students in a classroom together that you realise, well, actually, guys, you're all right. But technically, you're all at risk of also being wrong if you only associate that one word with with the way that something happens. So I think that's one of the advantages of, of studying and working around a group of other people. And it's something if you haven't got that, because I appreciate not everybody is studying in the environment that they're with other people that are versed in the world of accountancy that they can talk to. I live with an accountant. Dave, you live with an accountant. Not everybody has got a, a fellow accountant at home that they can um, bounce some of these words and terms off. That's where coming to forums like this are really good, um, doing wider reading we try as much as possible in our study course materials to put in as as broader terminology as possible to kind of um, enhance people's language skills. Rachel, you also touched on the fact that it's one thing being able to understand the information in a scenario, but one of the key words or the key sentences is what the examiner's actually asking you to do, the requirements. And it's something me and Dave have talked about lots on podcast episodes. What's your observation as English, not as your first language, with maybe misunderstanding what the examiner was actually asking you to do? So as a, it's the most important thing is read the question with the understanding, then how much harder is that to read that question in a second or third language, right? If you misunderstand what is the examiner asking you, you already have failed because you can't answer the question correctly. And again, lots of words may be the same word in a different language. So for example, in my language, discuss, you know, talk about, outline, that would be the same word. We don't have different, you know, words for that. But in English, if I say discuss the main challenges for companies in the whatever context, that means something else. And whereas if examiner asks you outline the main factors which affect the value of whatever, that means something completely different that the examiner is asking you. So I think it's important as well if when you are preparing yourself for the exam, not only to understand the context of, you know, the module that you are learning, but also look at the, you know, example questions, example model answers, because that will give you an understanding of these specific words, highlight them, you know, make sure that you understand what is the actual word asking you to do. Is it asking you to discuss it? You know, am I just outlining the main things? You know, am I talking about anything else? You know, it can be to what extent, you know, can the whatever be correctly considered, blah, blah, blah. So then again, you're talking about completely some, something else. The question is asking you something else. So looking at the, how the exam questions are you know built and understanding that word what is it asking me actually to do is another key part of you know passing any exam no matter whether it is that your first language or second or third you just need to understand that question actually and it's a good idea if your second language to look at model answers and model questions of what you could be asked Dave, what, what's your thoughts on that one? I particularly like the maybe associating the model answer with the word that the examiner's asked you to do. Yeah, it's it's um it's tough because I think even for even for you and I, Ben, you know, and we've spoken English all our lives, and um we've sat professional exams and we've taught professional exams. Even now, when we look at those kind of higher level papers where they're using those different verbs like you know discuss or analyze it's so easy to not quite give the examiner what they want 
you know, discuss the benefits of or discuss the drawbacks of or analyze this you know, particular project. All of those things, are, are, I think it's very easy for us to, to start doing the wrong thing. And I can only imagine how challenging it is when you're working with English as a second language and your native language doesn't have the distinction between some of those different things or doesn't have a direct translation. And I've got a few things to talk about in terms of direct translations in a minute, but um, you know, it, it's even more challenging. And I think the only way we can get through that is through practice and, and through making sure we understand what the examiner actually is asking from it and the, and the institutes do give guidance on what those verbs mean so it is worth looking at whatever institute you're with and they will give you guidance as to what they're looking for when they use the word describe or what they're looking for when they use the word define and it's you know frustrating that they're quite similar in terms of the way those words are constructed but they mean slightly different things um i, I was talking to a group of students yesterday and it was over lunchtime and so we started playing a bit of a game using some of those verbs. And if you're interested in that, we have done a previous podcast on it. Go and search it up in the podcast library. But we were looking at those verbs and I thought I'd do it for a bit of fun over lunchtime. We did it in the context of their lunch. Somebody had a salad. So we were we were talking about the difference between describing the salad and evaluating the salad. Describing it, we were getting words like, oh, the tomatoes are red and juicy. The lettuce is green and flat. When we were evaluating the salad, we were then giving a bit more perspective of maybe our thoughts around it. So maybe the tomatoes were overripe. The, the lettuce wasn't as crispy as we expected. And we were almost forming a conclusion. And so that comes from practice. It comes from doing questions and increasingly looking at model answers, but realizing what was the key thing there that got the tick. I was highlighting the key words that were saying, I think the marker would be looking for that bit because that was the one that was driven by the requirement. And we try to do that as much as possible. If you look at the model answers in some of our materials now, they tend to bold some of the words thinking that was the key word in the answer that you needed to, to convey to the marker. Dave, you mentioned some some words and, and mistranslations. What what have you got for us? This is my and finally piece, Ben. So um, I, you may have heard of some of these. I, I, I don't know if you have or not, Ben. But um, when movies are made, so we got Hollywood makes a movie and then they are sent all around the world and they'll be dubbed and they'll be subtitled and they'll have to be retitled in the language of the country that they're going to. So if you've got a Hollywood movie and it's got a Mexican release, then the, the Mexican distributor will look at what the American title is, will translate it into Spanish so that it can be accepted by the Spanish audience. They can understand what the movie is. Now, what I've been looking at is what happens when you translate that title back into English. Something here, someone has taken an English title has translated it into a foreign language, and now we're bringing it back into English. So this could be the exact type of thing that would happen for a non-native English speaker who reads a, 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 an exam question, translates it back into their native language, because that's how they think best, and then has to translate it back into English. And these are some of the, the issues that can arise. So I'm going to go for an easy one to start with, Ben. Okay, so you know the movie Grease. I do. 
Excellent. It's Argentinian title. So when translated into, it would be Spanish, wouldn't it, in Argentina, and then translated back into English, um, it comes back as Vaseline. No, I get that. You know, I, I I can understand that. You know, I I know that at the time Vaseline was used as a as a hair product, and the grease in the movie is a reference to the hair product that's used in the, in the hair band. So I kind of get that one. But if I if I move on to some others, um, so I don't know if you remember Ben, there was a a children's movie, and your girls may have seen this called Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. I, I remember the film well, Dave. Okay. Now, if you were to go to Israel and take the Israeli title of that movie and translate it back into English, it becomes It's Raining Falafel. <laughs> Which is now, probably a better title for the film, but but I but again I get it because Cloudy with a Chance of is a term that we see in weather reports. Now, cloudy with a chance of, I don't th- imagine you get many of those days in Israel. You know, it's in the it's in the Middle East. It's quite warm. It's quite a nice hot climate. I doubt you get many cloudy with a chance of rain or cloudy with a chance of sleet. So that that phrase is probably not one that's understood. Hello. And meatballs is a particular yeah, type of dish that I'm not convinced everyone around the world understands. So I, I, I quite liked um, yeah, it's raining falafel, and you think that's a better title? It's raining falafel. I'd, I'd be intrigued to go and watch it. <laughs> um, in France, the movie Jaws was called "The Teeth from the Sea." Okay, yeah, I, can, I, I, I quite like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then one of my favourite series of movies, which I, I know you're hopefully a big fan of, um, Die Hard. It's a Christmas movie. It'll be coming up soon. In Germany, the title translated back into UK is called Die Slowly. (laughs) I thought it was quite comical. Um, The sequel, Die Hard with a Vengeance, was Die Slowly, Now More Than Ever. This thing's genius. Um, I think I'll do one more just because I really like this one. And this is absolute spoiler alert for anyone that's not seen the movie but i would hope you've seen the movie um do you remember the movie the sixth sense Mm, yes well the sixth sense is a very specific turn of phrase that we use in english that doesn't always have a direct translation into a foreign language so in in china they must have watched the movie decided to rename it and when it came back to the uk and it's renamed the chinese title was he's a ghost which has just ruined the, the plot. <laughs> exactly, which is the, the final plot twist in the movie given away in the title. So I think if we are studying for our accountancy exams and we look at those really technical words and the first time we look at those words and we put them into our, our own terms and it's not quite right, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much about it because there are marketing teams of Hollywood movie writers that kind of make some slightly bizarre decisions when they're making exactly the same translation um, translation exercises in their in their world. And yeah, to give away the, the final denouement of a massive twist that at the time when it came out, everyone was saying, don't tell anyone what happens at the end because you'll ruin the movie. Well, in that particular marketplace, what they, you know, one of the biggest populations in the planet uh, on the planet, the moviegoers were told 
what happens at the end of the movie just by the title. Fascinating. And and how it goes one way and then back again has really just got me thinking about how that works. Rachel, I'm coming to you for final thoughts. I, I know your big message to me when we caught up this morning was just the amount of um, focus, cognitive process that studying in a second language actually takes. Yeah, so studying any language is a very huge cognitive process that you you know need to use lots of areas of your brain, you know, memory, language, reasoning, attention. And obviously, if any of these bits are missing, you can't actually learn effectively. So it is very important to have that understanding of that language that you are studying in, you know, to use your memory, try to reason to understand actually what does this mean? Where is, you know, how do I use this? And then paying attention is very, very important when you're trying to study anything, but especially if it's in your second language. So I do think just being mindful and aware when we are learning to, you know, use all of these areas, you know, of our brain trying to actively use them rather than, you know, doing it for long term. If you can pay attention, you know, and then take a break after 20 minutes, then come back to it again. But make sure that you really are paying attention to what you're trying to learn in that, you know, second language or third language, whichever language it is you are studying in. Yeah, it, it, it's a real challenging process and, and adding distractions into the mix while you're studying is not the best way to to achieve success. I, I really do see it in the classroom. I, I've taught numerous students over the years where English is not their first language and, and those guys really do focus. They are fully paying attention and actually take their studies really, really seriously because of it, because they know the extra challenges that they've got. I, I did have a couple of messages from the AAT earlier. I, I know not everybody listening to this will be studying the AAT, but they, they do um, follow Ofqual guidance. I think they are the only one of the professional bodies we teach for that are actually regulated by Ofqual, which means their assessments do have to go through in the UK um, higher level checks and balances. They do test all of their assessments, both with um, UK first language students in English and also some students where English is not their first language. They um they try as far as possible. I remember a, a, an old exam analogy and, and hopefully this is not happening anymore where there was a particular exam question that was asking students for the accounting treatment of a lathe, which caused lots of confusions because a lathe is quite an old fashioned English word for some equipment. It was a piece of machinery but if you didn't know what a lathe was, you were completely disadvantaged in that question because you wouldn't have associated it with the ability to capitalize it and therefore think about depreciation of it. And so increasingly, the examiners are aware of those issues and I hope are listening and, and not putting those hurdles into the exams. Um, and as I say, they are introducing the AT, this ability to have a, a bilingual translation dictionary. So if that's something of interest to you, reach out to your exam centre. It's something that, that First Intuition can ask more from the AAT about to exactly what is allowed in the exam. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the FI podcast with your hosts, Ben and Dave. As always, you can head over to the show notes where you can find the links and resources spoken about in today's episode. Please remember to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode and leave a rating and review.